For the Climate Discussion Nexus, I'm John Robson. And we start this week's readout video from our Wednesday Wake Up email newsletter with some adult activists who don't even aspire to be Andy Warhol throwing soup at a Van Gogh. They belong to a group called Just Stop Oil. And if you're wondering why they targeted one of the beloved masterpieces by a tormented Dutch 19th century painter, well, it might be because he used oil paint. That sounds kind of silly, but then consider that the painting was behind glass and that their effort to glue themselves to the wall also failed. Still, they're smart enough to know that the establishment is with them in their rebellion, including the press. For instance, CNN eagerly reprinted their propaganda that, quote, Just Stop Oil timed Friday's act to coincide with the planned launch of a new round of oil and gas licensing in the UK, end quote. Now, since the protesters were arrested, according to London police, on suspicion of, quote, criminal damage and aggravated trespass, end quote, and since Just Stop Oil knew about their stunt in time to have a press release prepared, complete with contact number, won't they face arrest too? Well, it seems not. Just Stop Oil had a crowdfunding campaign going and receives lavish backing in broad daylight from a climate emergency fund which boasts of handing out millions of dollars a year to such groups, whereas conservative dissenters are often thrown off funding as well as expression platforms without any illegal acts. Also, that same day, a JSO activist sprayed paint all over the sign in front of Scotland Yard from a large canister before police wandered over to politely request a halt, which rather speaks ill of the British police's overall security standards even in this era of terrorism. And, the Evening Standard further notes, quote, Demonstrators also blocked the road in front of the Metropolitan Police's headquarters during Just Stop Oil's action on Friday, end quote. When I was young, the general idea was that significant crimes shouldn't be committed right in front of large numbers of cops. But these youths seem to expect they'll be rewarded, not punished, and they may well have a point. As Roger Pielke Jr. tweeted in a mix of sorrow and indignation, quote, I encourage you to read the Just Stop Oil Manifesto. It's a sad statement of what we experts have done to young people. It is chock full of hyperbole from authoritative figures, references to work of the Planetary Boundaries folks, and RCP 8.5 studies, end quote. And a surprising number of other news stories also read exactly like JSO manifestos. Especially CTV's Climate Environment section news story headlined, quote, Headlines Outrage and Art. Climate activists use Van Gogh vandalism to make us question our priorities, end quote. And that story started, quote, Is the desecration of a painting worse than the willful destruction of the planet? This is the question that climate activists said they hoped to spark Friday by throwing soup on one of the most famous paintings in the world, Vincent Van Gogh's Sunflowers. Although the painting was protected by a layer of glass, social media was flooded with anger over the symbolic action. But behind the soup and the photos is a deadly story of increasing climate instability and government negligence, according to activists, one that they're hoping people will get just as enraged over, end quote. And on and on it went, quoting the activists and other authority figures, all saying we have to take drastic action to stop climate breakdown. Now, if these ineffective young vandals had any sense of history, or any education, they at least have used the same brand of soup as Andy Warhol featured in his paintings. But what coherent good could be achieved by destroying a beloved piece of art in any case? At least the ruffians who attacked Da Vinci's The Last Supper might be drawing some spurious connection between Christianity, patriarchy, capitalism, and environmental degradation, blah, 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 blah. But for these folks, thinking is apparently out. One of the activists said, quote, The cost of living crisis is driven by fossil fuels. Everyday life has become unaffordable for millions of cold-hungry families. They can't even afford to heat a tin of soup, end quote. 
And this person has no clue that it's the lack of fossil fuels that's making life unaffordable and indeed making it impossible to heat a tin of soup, just as they don't know that crime does not pay, and in their case, maybe it does. Meanwhile, Euronews Green declares that, quote, the war on Ukraine may be seen as a blessing from a climate perspective, says the head of the UN Weather Agency. The comment from Petteri Talas, Secretary General of the World Meteorological Organization, refers to the acceleration in green energies prompted by war-related fuel shortages, end quote. And what can you expect of kids when adults talk this way? Just as Politico awarded Vladimir Putin top spot in their Green 28 list because, quote, it took a war criminal to speed up Europe's green revolution, end quote. Now, quibblers might say that the invasion actually sent advanced nations staggering back to burning coal and some of their citizens back to burning trash. But for the zealots, it's different. They know it's going to lead to an acceleration, and they're so certain of it that they can see it happening before their eyes before it does. As Politico expressed it through green-tinted spectacles, quote, Putin's miscalculations on the battlefield have been well documented. But he also mistimed his energy war. He attacked Europe's energy system just as an array of cheap and reliable alternatives became realistic. That's not only solar and wind, which now generate power at a fraction the cost of gas. Products that even five years ago had barely entered the market, such as heat pumps, are now mature." End quote. Dare we remind people that the invasion was just eight months ago? It's a bit hard to believe all of these things happened since then, let alone because of it. But these zealots can see it, and they don't need any stinking facts. And yet, here's some good news. You know, at CDN, we're not big Greta Thunberg fans. But to promote intelligence and civil discourse, we give credit where due, and she deserves some. Last year, we said she was right that politicians jetting around eating fancy food and making hollow climate promises was an ugly sight. And now we say she just hit the uranium on the rod again with this comment about German nuclear reactors. Quote, if we have them already running, I feel that it's a mistake to close them down in order to focus on coal, end quote. And if you're tempted to dismiss that as a trite high school level insight, well, consider that it has eluded many supposedly responsible and well-educated adults. So we thank her sincerely for saying it. And while we're struggling to be generous, we should also note that Canada's Deputy Prime Minister and public intellectual Christia Freeland just had the breakthrough insight that energy security matters. The government media propaganda outlet CBC made her sound like a modern-day prophet. Quote, Canada's Deputy Prime Minister urged the world's democracies Tuesday to confront the hard economic truths of a perilous new world order and seek common cause in the shared values of prosperity, energy security, protecting the planet, and free and fair trade, end quote. Say, wasn't Canada's Prime Minister among the leading voices urging the world's democracies to ignore these truths? Yes, he was, as the CBC admits backhandedly. Quote, that sentiment is sure to raise eyebrows among critics who accuse Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and his government of dragging their feet on approving energy projects like export terminals for liquid natural gas, end quote. Among critics, like us. We also can't help noticing Freeland's long-standing talent for making trendy cliches sound like original insights, including in this case, quote, as fall turns to winter, Europe is bracing for a cold and bitter lesson in the strategic folly of economic reliance on countries whose political and moral values are inimical to our own, end quote. Right after that, nice German chancellor came to Canada groveling for natural gas exports and was told by her boss that there really was no business case for it. Still, if Freeland saying it means it's about to become conventional wisdom among the herd of independent minds, it's a good sign. And if she can help stampede them out of the wind farm and into the oil fields, we say more power to her. 
And speaking of opinion stampedes that might be starting, we also note a piece in Canada's National Post by Sabrina Mando taking aim at New Zealand's plan to gut its economy by crushing farming to put out the fire in the sky. Now, she's no denier. She insists that, quote, there's no question farms are a source of emissions which should be reduced over time, end quote. But then she says, quote, if climate change measures are to succeed, they need buy-in from the groups they affect, end quote. And once you start down that road, it's amazing how quickly you discover that the reason these measures do not and cannot get such buy-in is that their inevitable effect will be to devastate those groups. And then you start wondering why that is. She's not there yet, but it's a slippery slope. And she does add, quote, This requires realistic goals, an inclination to incentivize rather than punish, and a broad understanding of how well-intentioned legislation could have unintended but very consequential impacts, end quote. And frankly, once you get into the law of unintended consequences and this business about trade-offs between costs and benefits, you're essentially doomed. You start saying stuff like, quote, Too often, governments view climate change as a black-and-white story wherein their climate heroes and anyone who calls for reasoned restraint is a climate villain. Of course, this mindset conveniently doesn't apply to their own use of private jets or those of deep-pocketed lobbyists' wealthy benefactors. They'd also rather not talk about super emitters like China and India, with whom they'd rather avoid conflict in service of other political priorities, end quote. Well, she did just say that, so we say, come on down, ma'am, and bring your friends. In the newsletter, we also note a new paper in the peer-reviewed journal Climate Dynamics by Italian climate scientist Nicola Scafetta that reviews 688 state-of-the-art climate model runs over the period from 1980 to 2021, and finds that only those with the lowest sensitivity to CO2 managed to reproduce the recent past that the modelers knew about in advance. It's remarkable that the amount of warming various models predict varies by a factor of at least three, which is not exactly settled science, and that the errors aren't split between too much and too little warming, but always run too hot. But the most striking point is that when Scafetta expanded his previous work by including every run from every model used by the IPCC for their latest report, only those in the left column of this chart that assume low ECS, that is, the amount of warming to be expected from doubling atmospheric CO2, get anywhere close to the known past. The medium and high ECS models don't describe our planet, but some hothouse alarmist dystopia where we don't live. And yet those are the ones that governments and journalists look to when conjuring up images of what the future will bring unless we stop selfishly wanting luxuries like energy to warm our homes, or gas for our cars, or even enough to heat a tin of soup. In the newsletter, we also continue our Everybody Knows feature, starting with a warning from the narwhal that, quote, we need to talk about BC's drought, end quote. The piece says, quote, as salmon and red cedar suffer during what many are calling October, we're reminded of the alarming rate at which our climate is changing, end quote. But are we? Canada's wet coast going dry does seem ominous, but as alert reader Ron from Nanaimo points out, evidence shows that BC droughts happen regularly, and most were worse hundreds of years ago. A 2015 study by Bethany Coulthard of the University of Arizona and Dan Smith of the University of Victoria used tree ring widths on Vancouver Island to reconstruct estimates of stream flow depth over 477 years, from 1520 to 1997, and guess what? Quote, Our findings suggest that since 1520, 21 droughts occurred that were more extreme than recent severe events like those in 2003 and 2009. Recent droughts are therefore not anomalous relative to the roughly 400-year pre-instrumental record and should be anticipated within water management strategies, end quote. The worst drought since 1520 was in 1992, the year Mount Pinatubo caused an unusually cool wet coast summer. But the real action was centuries earlier. 
Quote, the most extreme droughts recorded occurred in 1651, 1660, and 1665, with an unusual cluster of seven drought years occurring between 1649 and 1667. Only once in the last 440 years have drought conditions persisted for three or more years, 1665 to 1667. None of the reconstructed droughts was more severe than the worst instrumental drought in 1992, when summer streamflow was only 21% of the reconstructed instrumental period mean discharge." End quote. They also found no evidence of a trend since 1960 relative to the previous half-millennium, and they add sensibly that we'd better assume that droughts are going to happen regularly in the future as they have in the past, despite what everybody knows. And speaking of drought in Western Canada, we again dip into the CO2Science.org archive for a study of annual flow on the North Saskatchewan River going back 945 years, based on tree rings, and found, well, fluctuations, including severe droughts lasting around 30 years in the early 1700s and the mid-1100s, plus mega-droughts through most of the 14th century and the latter 15th. Yep, it's natural variability again. For the Climate Discussion Nexus, I'm John Robson, and I'm not surprised to hear that nature is variable.